This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. One of the age-old debates among linguists, philosophers and even psychologists is if language can shape the way we think. Well, Sandy Clark, who's an author and licensed counsellor, suggests that not only can language impact one's psychology, but also one's perception of time can impact psychology as well. But how exactly? I'm Darshan Johan and this is Today I Learned. Welcome to the show, Sandy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on your show, Dashran. So uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm very excited to dive into this topic with you because it's something that I'm very fascinated by as well. Um, Sandy, you're someone who works in the realm of positive psychology. You want to empower people by getting them um, into the right mindset. Now, you once wrote um, in, an, in your column on the star, and I quote, how we think of language is important because how we use it shapes who we are and how we relate to the world, end quote. What did you mean by this exactly? Well, I think that, um, you know, language is, is certainly fundamental to how we shape our world, right? How we see our being in the world, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to others, how we make sense of the environment around us. There was uh, an Austrian philosopher by the name of Wittgenstein, and he, in his book, uh, Philosophical Investigations, he had this idea, he wrote that the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. Um, and so this suggests the way that we use language shapes our understanding of reality and determines what's possible for us to think and talk about. And also, you know, um, the, the sort of frames that we use in terms of culture, beliefs, value systems and so on. Right. I'm wondering if there are any literature in psychology that discusses how language affects um, one's, you know, psychology. Because um, this is, like I mentioned in the introduction, an age-old debate. It's been um, discussed a lot, um, even among, um, you know, science fiction writers. For example, Ted Chiang, when there was this film called um, Arrival. Um, and, and the film, based on the, the short story by Ted Chiang, basically dives into this idea of how, you know, if you understand an alien language, for example, you might even start to perceive time differently because, you know, the time, the way we perceive time as uh, most cultures across the world is in a very linear fashion. And, and if you study a different language, you can even um, start perceiving time in a non-linear way. I'm, I'm wondering how much weight um, do these theories and, and debates and, and all of that have and and how do, how do you see it well again it comes back to this idea of um you know the, how language shapes your um sort of culture norms right. Uh, environment right so um if you find yourself um for example um you know there's this joke about uh, being in malaysian time right so if, <laughs> if someone says you know i'll i'll be there at 2 30 and that can mean any time from like 2 30 to the following 1 p.m right? <laughs> um whereas it, let's say in the UK, if someone says to you, right, you need to sort of be on time, you know, 2.30, you're going to be there by about 2.15, 2.10, and that, that kind of counts as being on time, right? And interestingly, I was speaking to one of the Google chiefs called uh, Mo Goddard, and you'll forgive me, I, I can't quite remember what he's the chief of, but uh, he wrote a really interesting book called Solve for Happiness, 
right. uh, which which talks about this idea of, of of how we perceive life, time, events, and so on. Um, and he made the point that you know some cultures are um, time based, uh, which means that we kind of go along sort of chronological ways of thinking. Right, I need to be here by two thirty. I need to have dinner at this time and this time. Um, he said, but other cultures are events based. They're events driven, which means. You know, I'm, I, I've got this appointment at three o'clock, but, you know, I'm having such a good time or this is a really important thing I'm engaged in. So therefore, the, the sense of, of time is, is less important in a chronological sense, um, according to that culture. Um, in, in terms of the psychological literature, um, uh, how sort of uh, language can, can impact psychology, the, the model I'm most uh, familiar with is one called relational frame theory, right. which sort of underpins the work um uh, of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is an approach that I use. So this is a, a psychological theory that explains how humans learn to understand language and how we use language to shape our thoughts and actions. And if you're up for it, we can do like a, a, a couple of brief exercises right. just to sort of show how quickly the mind sort of frames information Absolutely. and how quickly it kind of takes on information and retains it. Are you up for that? Yes, definitely. Bring it on. <laughs> and, and, and of course, this isn't rehearsed. So, um, you know, we'll have to sort of just wing it as we go along. All right. Um, so fairly straightforward. Just say whatever comes into your mind next when I say the, the, the next couple of sentences. Got it? Okay. Okay, so just whatever comes into your mind once I stop uh, speaking. So the first uh, sentence would be one, two, three. Numbers. What? What would? How would you carry that on? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Right. Okay. Um, Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, little lamb. Right. <laughs> okay. So, 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 so the chances are that you know you didn't you know, learn that yourself and, and, and someone someone taught you that, right? right. Whereas um, some somebody in a different culture would have no idea what Mary has. Mm. Um, you know, they, um, they, they wouldn't know how to sort of finish that sequence, um, for right. example. But here's the twist, right? So I'm going to do those, those, um, those sentences again. Mm -hmm. And I want you to try and come up with something completely different. It can be anything in the world that you to bring to mind right okay but just try and finish the the, the, the sequence or the, the, the so i can just be as random sentence. as i want yeah 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 okay. go for it okay okay so so let's go for the first one one two three batman superman spider-man awesome mary had a little dog okay that was interesting <laughs> so in the second <laughs> sentence there was like a little touch of a hesitation yes it's almost as if your mind went to lamb and sort of said, nope, can't do that. <laughs> right, right. Yes. It took me like about a split second before I could yeah. like come up with something else. <laughs> so, 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 so relational frame theory has this, this, this idea that we, we, we connect sort of different frames of reference in terms of our language, right? right. So um, rules and, and, and regulations that govern our thinking, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, and, and it's really difficult to, to sort of overturn that thinking. It's really difficult to um, come out outside of those frames of references so depending on the culture depending on where you are the way you think the way you express yourself um it, it is so ingrained that it can limit the perception um of things like time it can limit perception of of, of the world at large as, as Wittgenstein mentioned right that's what he means by the limits of my language means the limits of my world 
Right. Now, I'm wondering then, um, have you spoken to or had clients? Because you deal with, with clients, either corporate or, or otherwise. Um, with, and these clients, I'm wondering if you've dealt with clients with varying um, first languages. And do they express themselves differently? For example, a person whose first language is Mandarin versus a person whose first language is English. Um, are there differences in the way they deal with issues psychologically? It's interesting that you raise that question because quite often, you know, clients who have a first language uh, other than English, uh, they'll say to me, for example, uh, so they'll be describing an issue, then they'll say, oh, I know the word in, in Mandarin, I just can't right. think of the, the word in English because it has a slightly different meaning, right? Mm -hmm. So even, even this idea of, um, okay, there is a term, but it kind of means something slightly different in, in my culture. So I'm going to have to find a new meaning. I'm going to have to create a new frame of reference. I'm going to have to sort of, you know, think beyond Mary has a little lamb to kind of get to the meaning that you'll understand. Um, so quite often the way they, they might express themselves, they, they'll have to, uh, you know, think about, okay, how can I frame this in a way that you're going to understand me and then relate in, in, in a way that's going to be helpful. Um, in terms of how people from different cultures might process and deal with psychological issues, um, there, there's certainly a lot of differences. So, for example, some cultures might place a, a, a greater emphasis on the role of family and community right. in addressing issues um, and might rely more on social support and, and collective coping strategies Um you know, in these cultures, seeking help from a mental health professional, for example, might be see seen as like a last resort or, or it might be something they feel that, that's not really done in their culture. Um, you know, whereas um, in other cultures, they might be a bit more um, open to, to seeking help from mental health professionals and, and right. dealing with psychological issues um, because there's more sense of individual autonomy and the role of the individual in, in terms of, you know, agency in their life and seeking help where needed. Um, and, and of course, in some cultural belief systems, they might view psychological issues as having a sort of supernatural or, or spiritual bent. Um, and so they might incorporate spiritual and religious practices into their approach of dealing with, with psychological issues, um, whereas others might feel that, you know, issues are based primarily in biological or psychological um, issues and so they might rely more on sort of therapy or, or psychiatry or medication to, to, to help them deal with those kind of issues. Um, just to dive a little deeper into that, um, would you say that the languages that they speak shape um, their culture. I, I'm wondering, for example, when we look at um, something like gender, if we speak a particular language that expresses gender as a spectrum rather than gender as something that is binary, if you only grow up speaking that language, especially if you're perhaps isolated from other languages and cultures, um, does your language then shape how you view human beings in, in terms of the gender spectrum? Will you be looking at it differently from um, than someone who speaks, let's say, English or or, you know, Basa Malaysia or whatever, in which gender is primarily presented as a binary man and woman, for example? Well, well, if you think of language um, in the sense of, I mean, none of us, none of us um, are born speaking uh, our language, right? None of right. us. Are, you can take you can take a baby, let's say, in in, in, in Pakistan or Montenegro or Ecuador. Um, you know, they've been born there a few days. You can take them off to Canada or or, or, or Germany or. Mm -hmm. or 
England, and, and suddenly they're going to take on customs and languages and beliefs that they would otherwise not have experienced had they stayed in their, their native country. So so it depends on the, on, on the culture. And like you say, the, the way that the language is framed around things like gender, um, uh, the gender spectrum, or wh- whether you see it as a binary issue, or whether you see um, genders playing, um, having different roles in life, right. or, or you know, having, having their place in life. Um, so how, how we can think about social issues is very much impacted by, by the language um, that we use, right? Because the language that we use comes back to this idea of shaping our um, sort of cultural norms and values um, and beliefs. And I think this is why people who, for example, travel the world and, and learn different languages and become accustomed to different ways of, of living. Um, so the, the, the psychological research would suggest that these people um, are a bit more exposed, a bit more open to different ways of life. Um, because one thing that language does do um, quite sort of deeply is ingrain your sense of identity, right? right. And, and you can see this across the board. Like, let's take something like football, for example. Um, you know, like Manchester United, um, Liverpool, Arsenal, they have their own language through their songs, through their chants, through right. their ways of relating to, you know, their community. And it's so deeply ingrained, right? Um, and, and, so, and so you can imagine just how much more so that's going to be if you're growing up in a particular culture um, that already has particular views on, on, on sort of social issues, on, on um, yeah, these kind of cultural beliefs and, and value systems. So the chances are that if you grow up just knowing only that, then you're certainly going to espouse the, the, the views that are inherent within that culture. On the show with me today is Sandy Clark, licensed counsellor. After the break, we continue our discussion on how one's perception of time can impact one's psychology. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan. And on the show with me today is Sandy Clark. He's a licensed counsellor. And our topic for today is how our perception of time can impact our psychology. So, Sandy, you take it one step further um, when you write about the ancient Greeks' perspective of time, um, Choros and Kairos. Now, before you expand on that, um, can I ask, how does one's perspective of time affect one's psychology? There's a there's a, a, a joke that's ascribed to um, Albert Einstein as he's um, explaining his theory of relativity when right. he says that if you spend one hour in the presence of a beautiful woman, it feels like one minute, <laughs> and if you and if you and if you spend one minute with your hand on a hot stove, it feels like an eternity. Right. Um, so um, how our perception of time can affect how we think and, and feel and act. Um, there was a really genius stroke of marketing, and I forget when this was first introduced. Uh, but you know, you know when they used to have like tele sales on TV and things like that, you right. know, uh, sort of like your um, shopping channels and all that stuff when they first started to come in into play. So someone thought of the genius idea of of coming up with the line: um, "Don't worry if you can't get through initially; just keep calling through, and hopefully someone will be able to take your order." Right? right, and when that was proposed. You know, it was initially thought oh, that's a bit strange. Why would you tell people that they can't get through? Then it's going to make them less likely to call because you know what are the chances of getting through? But what it did was it created this sense of urgency, this sense of scarcity. Mm-hmm. I have to 
really try my hardest to get this thing because so many people are after it at the same time. Um, we see it in phrases like, uh, you know, limited edition, uh, get the, these, these tickets while there's still seats left. Um, these are high demand. So anything that gives us a sense of time running out is going to make us more driven, more anxious, more stressed right. to sort of get to where we want to go. Whereas um, research has shown that people who are, if they have the perception that the that time is is abundant, that there's no real rush, that, that you know it's, it's perfectly fine. Um, you know they're going to be more relaxed, uh, perhaps a bit less motivated to be to be in a hurry. And if I can just um, give you very quickly, mm -hmm. uh, there's an interesting study that was done in the 70s uh, at Princeton um, Theological Seminary, and the, the the researchers wanted to find out what makes us do good things. Uh, is it intrinsic motivation? Is it is it some other kind of explanation? So I'll just summarize the the, the study very right. quickly. So what they did was they they got a bunch of students. So the, these are people who are training to be priests, right? So you you would think that they have a lot of inherent motivation um, to to sort of really embody the qualities that are implied by that. Yep. Um, so they, they they were sent to one building to fill out a, se a series of, of surveys. And then they were told to prepare a sermon on the Good Samaritan story um, that they had to go to another building to then sort of be briefed on and then to to deliver the sermon. Right. So um, so these these students were, were put into three categories. Mm -hmm. uh, you have plenty of the, So the first one was you have plenty of time to get there. You know, don't worry, no rush. Second category was you're on time, but you kind of want to get a move on. The, the third category was, uh, you know, you're kind of running late, so you need to sort of hurry. So the, the, the distance in between the two buildings, they placed, the researchers placed um, someone in an alleyway who seemed to be suffering in a great deal of pain. Mm -hmm. And every uh, student would have seen this person because the alleyway was quite narrow. So they would have had to literally step over this guy if if they were, you know, um, uh, disinclined to help. Right. So, so what they what they found was that um, the time constraint mattered a lot in, mm. in terms of whether people stopped to, to help. So, sixty three percent of the participants who had a ton of time um, stopped to to help the stranger. Forty five percent who were on time um, stopped to help the stranger, and about ten percent of the people who were late stopped to give assistance. Right, right. Um, which is really interesting because even the people who were who had plenty of time. Roughly about sort of you know thirty five thirty seven yep. percent of people still stepped over the stranger right. So what the study showed was that your dispositional um, uh, motivation. So you know I, I'm doing this I, I'm doing this um, course to be a good person. I'm doing this course, I'm learning to be a priest so I can be closer to God and so on. The intrinsic motivations mattered less than your situational factor. So in this case, time. Um, so if you're in a hurry you're less likely to be, uh, you know, uh, stopping to help people. So right. that was quite an interesting finding from from quite a famous study. Absolutely. that That's very fascinating indeed. So how does that tie into, um, you know, this in, the, the ancient Greeks' perspective of time, which is Shor, uh, Choros and Kairos? Um, what exactly are these um, two, uh, you know, terms? What, what do they mean? Why is it important to you? So as, as expressive as the English language can be, and, and certainly we've had some good writers and, and some sort of historic 
sort of timeless pieces of work. Right. Um, but it's also very limited in terms of how we define things. So, for example, uh, the Greeks have several meanings for uh, love. For, you know, I think they have at least, you know, nine or ten plus different types of love. And similar when it comes to time, right? So uh, it, it, from the from the Greek, there's this idea of chronos, which means um, sort of linear time, measurable time. We have a certain amount of time for this interview uh, because then you have to go on to do something else at, you know, um, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock and so on. Um, so it, it's that, that that idea that we experience uh, life on a clock or calendar mm. uh, is, is a kind of time that we typically think about when we talk about the past, present and future, right? Very kind of orderly. And it has its benefits, right? Because it helps things keep running um, in a sort of orderly fashion. You know where you're going to go. You, you, you know what's going to happen and so on. Um, so it's beneficial in that sense. But sometimes what it does is it makes us lose sense of another way of looking at time, which uh, the Greeks described as kairos. So this refers to the idea um, of like significant moments, um, you know, the, the quality of time instead of the quantity. And to give you an idea of, of what that might mean, right? So my dad at the moment is, is 70 years old. You know, if he lives until he's 85, in a chronological sense, I have, um, you know, 15, 15 more years, years roughly of, of, right. of time with him, right? But if I only go home um, every three years, that means I only have like maybe five more visits with him. I don't have 15 years. I have five more visits, mm-hmm. which kind of really, you know, makes the, the chronology sort of redundant because the, the time in that sense is, is irrelevant. It's how much time are you actually going to have with this right. person? And and also, Kairos would kind of give rise to this idea that for everything that we do, there's going to be a last time that you're going to do it, and we don't pay attention to our events, our interactions, our relationships as much as we should do because we take them for granted, right? So let's say, for example, you meet up with friends every couple of months or whatever, or you play badminton every week with a particular group of friends, um, the last time I played badminton was in 2019, mm-hmm. right? And at that point, it was a weekly event, right? I, I, I had no idea that, that the last time I was going to play badminton for three years was, was that time. Right. Um, so what Kairos kind of calls on you to do is sort of, you know, be a bit more present to your experiences that matter uh, because at some point that's going to happen for the last time. And, and one of the ways in which it's quite common uh, experience for people um, when you have kids, for example, at some point in their teenage years, a lot of them are going to stop kissing the parents goodnight because it's going to feel weird, it's going right. to feel awkward. They're developing their sense of independence and so on. But the parent or nor the child are going to know that that the last kiss goodnight is going to be the last kiss goodnight, right? Um, so that's why parents often talk about this idea of cherishing the time with with your kids because they grow up so fast, mm-hmm. and that's partly why because there's going to be a time where you know they're they're going to do things for the last time, and you're going to do things with them for the last time, but you're never going to know it's coming. Um, and because of that, there's this call really to be present to those moments that matter. So let's say, for example, you're you're sort of um, on a date with someone who's really attractive, really engaging. Um, you know, that, that's that's going to fly by because you're having such a good time, right? But you're probably going to be like thinking about, oh, you know, I've only got another hour, I've only got another 30 minutes, rather than being in the experience and just enjoying the time that you have. And, and something that you can do in those moments is, you know, whenever you're in any kind of meaningful or enjoyable 
situation, just allow yourself to appreciate that. Um, you know, whatever time that you have, don't get don't give give a thought to that minute by minute. Um, you know, if you want to kind of slow the time down, then just appreciate uh, you know the person that you're with, the situation that you're in. Uh, I I have been uh, meeting up with one of my good friends, uh, Dr. Eugene T, uh, mm-hmm. who I, I, I collaborate with, and, and he's just a very good personal friend as well. And so we've been meeting up fairly regularly over the past few weeks. And at some point, I take the time just to sort of consciously appreciate the fact that we're, we're able to meet up and have dinner and have these conversations rather than kind of take them for granted and thinking about, okay, once I'm meeting, once I'm done meeting with Eugene, I need to go and have um, you know, this meeting, I need to catch up on emails, I need to right. prepare for tomorrow. I keep that stuff out of mind as far as I can and just focus on that interaction with him because it's always quite engaging and entertaining and, you know, and and, and very enjoyable. So, yeah, so to kind of slow myself down and, and really concentrate on enjoying, savouring that experience. Why is it beneficial to be more present in a, in a Kairos mindset? What exactly are we trying to achieve here? So there's a really wonderful um, film series called the the best exotic marigold hotel, and right. I think it was um, it came out in, in 2011. Mm-hmm. And there's a really wonderful exchange where one of the characters says, um, "Why do you think people, are, you know, on this side of the world in the East, um, seem to be more uh, sort of happier, more relaxed, more sort of enjoying life?" And came, comes the the, the response. Um, well, it's because people here um, live life as though it's a privilege rather than a right, right? So they they have this sense that they have this, they've struck the lottery, the, 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 the cosmic lottery of being able to exist and enjoy and experience life, right? right. So I, I think it's beneficial in the sense that, you know, we, by developing this kind of mindset, we tune in more to our experiences and we don't take them for granted. Um, and like, we discussed earlier that recognition that things aren't going to last. There's never going to be um, another January um, sort of 2023, for example. This is it, right? There's never going to be another one. You're, you're not going to go through the same experiences ever again. Um, so, so try and make the most of that as you can. Savor the moments. Don't be in a hurry to jump to the next thing. And if we spend too much time rushing, I mean, we're all headed to the same destination eventually anyway. So, you know, What's the hurry? Try to slow down a bit and really, you know, make the most of our experiences a bit more. Be intentional in terms of how you're showing up to life, because then by the time you get to your old age, and I was just having a conversation with a, a relative of mine mm-hmm. uh, yesterday, and she made the the, the the excellent point that, you know, when, when she was younger with her friends, they really made the most of their time together so that now most of them are in their 70s, some of them are in their 80s. Um, they don't have any regrets because they know that they've used that time well, they've enjoyed their life, they've put a lot of meaning into their, their experiences um, and now that they've reached the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the sort of end part of, of their life, as it were, maybe another decade or two at most to go, uh, they have no regrets because they've lived their life to the fullest uh, possible. So 
how do we start thinking um, about time with a Kairos mindset? We already, we already understand it, or at least we have some um, basic grasp of it. How do we change our mindset? Because changing your mindset, um, especially when we look at you know our perception of time, thinking about time differently, these are not things that perhaps can be done overnight. Um, how do we start changing our mindset? Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you make that um, any change is, is, is difficult to, mm-hmm. to achieve overnight. And um, yeah, to become more uh, in, in tune with your experiences, uh, tuned to, to what matters in life. So one of the things that I've been doing personally is, is reflecting uh, on this idea of how much time in a day am I doing something that's meaningful to me. Now, in a professional sense, I have an extremely meaningful job and you know, and I, I feel privileged to be able to do that. But in, in a personal sense, outside of the job, right. um, what am I doing that every day that's, that's at least a little bit meaningful, that brings a sense of connection, that brings a sense of engagement, of, of meaning? Um, so what I've been doing is trying to accept more social invitations, for example. Now, I'm someone who's extremely introverted, and if I could, I would live life like a hermit. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, but I, I realized that, well, hold on a minute, you know, I have you know, some very good friends. I have some very good um, people around me and, and I enjoy spending time with them. And usually um, I might sort of think, well, no, I'll do it tomorrow or I'll meet up next week or I'll meet up next month. But none of us are guaranteed that time. Mm-hmm. So um, so I've tried to sort of be more accepting of these invitations so that I know when I spend time with these people, it's going to, you know, be quite uplifting and, and be quite meaningful to me. And, and um, you know, it, it, on the flip side, I also kind of reflect on what am I doing in my day that's, that's taking value away from, from, you know, my life, the way I'm living. Uh, so that might be, am I checking the news too often? Am I scrolling through social media for hours per day to, to no real effect? Um, so having that sense of what's taking away from from your time as well and trying to sort of cut that down a little bit. Um, and also, you know, how often are you just enjoying life? Uh, you know, work is important. Commitments are important. Um, being there for people, uh, you know, doing all the things that, that sort of allow you to contribute to, to your personal, professional life. But how often are you, are you just, you know, taking a walk or just sitting outside in the garden if you have one or the balcony or whatever and just spending time with yourself, right. um, thinking about this stuff, you know, what, what, what is important to you? What does matter? Who matters to you? Um, you know, who have you not seen in a while that you would like to check in with? Um, you know, as I say to some people who will say, uh, well, my friends haven't texted me in a long time or this person hasn't got in touch with me. And I'll just kind of remind them that, well, when was the last time you got in touch? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it kind of goes both ways because <laughs> we always think, right, well, if that person's not getting in touch with me, then uh, I'm not going to bother. Right. Uh, but, but if that thing's important to you, then, you know, make the time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because at some point you're going to say, I wish I had done that. Mm-hmm. And, and by that point, it's too late. So before we wrap this conversation up, Sandy, I just want to hone in on something you wrote in your column on The Star, right? And you said with regard to this topic, um, ask yourself, what would you do if you knew today was your last day? Um, How do you tackle this question, Sandy? Because I've tried thinking about it many times over the years, but can't come to any meaningful or exciting conclusions. Ultimately, when I really think about it, I keep landing on sought-out documents for family members. 
I used to really dislike that question because, you know, I, I would look at it literally and think, well, you know, I'm not going to live every day as if it's my last day. Like you're right. tied to an IV tube in a bed <laughs> with a chamber cot, perhaps. Like that, that's no way to live, right? right. Uh, but um, but I think that question is is really a kind of symbolic um, rhetorical question. Right. If this was to be your last day uh, in the sense, again, what are you doing today that gives your life a bit of meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in, in one of the John Lennon songs, you know, uh, he, he he sings that, you know, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. <laughs> you, you mean to do a lot of things. You mean to get around of, of getting in touch with your parents. You mean to get around to, you know, asking that person on, on, on a date. But, you know, you've got too many emails to sort of catch up on. You've got too many things to plan for for the next week or the next day. Um, so um, how, how would you live if this was your last day? It's really just a... a a reminder that, you know, our time is limited and to reflect on the question, uh, to use it to, to, to live a meaningful life. Um, so, for example, um, if you see someone who's struggling or someone who needs help, is it really, is, is your sort of um, commitment that you're going to the other building to give a talk or whatever, is that really more important than, than helping the person who's really struggling on the street if you come across someone like that? Um are you going to feel bad when you reflect? Oh, you know, I, I was in such a hurry. I didn't help that guy. And oh, that's going to stick with me for, for a long time. Whereas if you just kind of take a step back and reflect, okay, there's this situation in front of me. There's this opportunity in front of me. There's this thing that I can do to take that time to think, right, is this going to add more meaning, more value, more joy to my life? Is this some something I should do? I mean, I, I hear people, for example, say, Oh, no, no, I can't spend on a th- th- this item, even though I would really enjoy it. I would really love using it or spending time with it because, you know, I'm saving up for, you know, whatever else, 10 years down the line. And you, you think just, you know, buy the thing. <laughs> like just, 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 you know, have at it. Right. Uh, you, you can always sort of save some more money later on. But, you know, it's, it's important to live a little because, you know, unlike the, the, the or just like the ancient Egyptian pharaohs, no matter how much you pack into your 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 tomb or your pyramid or whatever, and you're not going to take that stuff with you. So enjoy life while you have it. And I think that's a fantastic way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Sandy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Sandy Clark. He's a licensed counsellor and the co-author of the book Mindfulness and Emotions. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. Just head over to the BFM app, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from and search Today I Learned Podcast. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.